You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 279. There's an electrical thing about movies. Oliver Stone. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Now, guys, I know that all of us want to make profitable films, but there's so many pitfalls to watch out for. So I wanted to put together a free video series to help you guys Learn the three key secrets to producing a successful and profitable film taught by best-selling author and veteran film producer Suzanne Lyons. All you need to do to get access to this course for free is head over to IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash free. Now, guys, today on the show, we have award-winning producer Anne-Marie Gillen, who has produced films with Morgan Freeman, Gene Hackman, uh, films for Universal Studios, worked with budgets from a million dollars to $25 million and so much more. She is also the author of the best-selling book, The Producer's Business Handbook, The Roadmap for the Balanced Film Producer. Now, Anne and I get into the weeds of what it takes to be a producer, what it takes to get an independent film off the ground, and how to avoid many of the pitfalls that young and inexperienced film producers and filmmakers fall into all the time. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Anne-Marie Gillen. I'd like to welcome to the show Anne-Marie Gillen. How are you doing, Anne-Marie? I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Alex. I just uh, have both of my vaccinations and passed oh. my two-week incubation period, so oh. I'm almost normal. <laughs> um, almost. I'm. My wife and I are just almost there. We're in the go-f-yourself category right now, but we're oh. almost... <laughs> we're almost to the edge. We're like, and it's so sad for us because we're just right on the border of like, no, yeah. not yet, not yet. But in a, in a, as of this recording in about a week or so, we should be able to, um, to, uh, to jump on. Beautiful. So it's been a crazy, uh, so. it's been great. It's been a crazy year and change. It has affected not only the world, but it's just thrown our business upside down uh, in the way we do business, as the way as the way we consume content, as the, as the way we release content. I think the the ripple effects of what has happened in our industry will be felt for years to come, from the theatrical experience to streaming. I'd love to hear just really quickly what you think of where we are right now and how how you think this is all going to kind of shake out because 
we're in the ripples still. We're not out of the ripples. We are in, we're no, still we're in the ripples. Yeah, we're absolutely. But I think more than anything is especially with how we consume um i think was because of covid was just launched very quickly five ten years ahead of the game plan but yeah. it's where we were always headed right. so that didn't surprise me too much it certainly affected the theatrical way more than we would have if we hadn't have had covid but i do believe that will come back um to a certain level but it'll be much level. more yeah the theatrical will i don't think you know it I think when it comes to this, the indies and documentaries and things like that, I think it will be pretty much staying with the streaming, but the big event movies and um, uh, visual effects kind of immersive movies, I think will come back very strongly when we can all go back to the theater because we all desperately miss it. Oh, I miss I miss going to the theater, but I don't know when I'll feel comfortable in the theater again. It's going to be a really that I, I call it the hangover, the COVID hangover of just yeah. like being in a room with someone else without a mask on a handshake, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, I was a hugger back in the day. I was a hugger. Like, you know, you're yeah. like, Hey, you say goodbye. You say hello. I'm Latino. So this is the way it is. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you know, it's just like, ah, you give them a hug and, you know, and you say goodbye. Um, so it is a, um, it's going to be interesting. I think we're going to still be feeling this for the next few years. I don't think the movie, I don't think the theatrical experience will ever come back to its height. <laughs> prior and it's been going down steadily i mean if it wasn't for if it wasn't for marvel take marvel out of the equation for the last decade oh yeah take disney marvel out but what where why the numbers have stayed up is because the cost of the ticket has gone up right it's but the admissions have been slowly kind of steadily just ever so slightly going down so it's gonna i don't think you'll ever i don't think you'll ever come back up i think it'll eventually eventually turn into a broadway scenario where it's event films only like right like i'm not going to i'm not going to the theater to see a comedy right now like it's not really necessary but i will go see an event movie or big action extravaganza or exactly or something that's cinematic like joker even though joker wasn't a like a huge blockbuster like action-packed it was essentially taxi driver <laughs> but, it was, oh, yeah. but it was but it was cinematic and right i wanted to go see it there so right right there's I, certain... I think you're absolutely right but i don't think those numbers will go back up to where they were yeah and that's okay i don't think we have to bemoan that so much mm -hmm. you know there's still uh, you know the, the good news is there's so many more outlets for us producers mm -hmm. to go to now that weren't there before and the competition is fierce mm -hmm. and the whole you know i gotta have a theatrical release mentality i think has fallen by the wayside pretty strongly <laughs> very strongly it's yeah. not it's not as sexy as it, i mean don't get me wrong look it's still uh, uh, of a filmmakers of a certain generation will always have a reverence for the theatrical yes. experience and, like they my, should. and my generation maybe the generation behind us but like my kids or the kids or like the generation the teenagers right now yeah it's not as big of a deal as it is to my generation, your generation, generation behind me. It was just like, oh, you're not a real filmmaker unless you're up on the screen. But you and I think film festivals will fill that space even more. So the idea that your film is premiered at a festival in a theater to have that kind of experience will help replace that. And I think film festivals will grow even more so because of that. And you, you remember when when people filmmakers was like, well, you're not a real filmmaker unless you shoot film. Yeah, that's gone now. Right. 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. Now it's like, I didn't get a theatrical, but I premiered on Netflix. Uh, mm -hmm. And now, you know, a hundred million people just watched my movie. Exactly. Far more than they ever would going to the theater. Oh, absolutely. I had a, I had a, a filmmaker on the other day who directed the docu amazing documentary called The Last Blockbuster. Um, and he, Taylor, he got a Netflix deal, which is ironic and brutal in so many ways that Netflix is premiering and it's a huge hit. And he's like, it's out. So many people are going to watch that film that would have never seen it. Otherwise. Never seen it before, especially when it comes to a documentary or I'm real big into social impact entertainment right now. Um, and, and it's really, if you really uh, believe in those things, it's, it's about eyeballs, not about opening in a theater or opening streaming or opening right. film festival or whatever. You've got to get the eyeballs in order to change the attitude, to get the dialogue going, to get them from um, apathy to empathy and into action about whatever the topic is. So absolutely. So we went on a tangent. So let's start actually. How did you get it? How did you get in the business? Well, I hail from um, Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I always was a performer um, in high school. I did every play and I majored. I was an acting major in college and came back to the Twin Cities and did the whole theater scene, the Guthrie and Children's Theater. Um, I then focused on my dance side of things and I was in a dance company and a choreographer. So that was my whole life. And one winter. <laughs> I just felt like I was hitting the glass ceiling here and it was about as good as it was going to get. And I really wanted the next and the new challenge. And it was the middle of, middle of a very cruel, cold winter. And so it was like, OK, it's either probably New York or L.A. You know, Chicago felt more like a lateral move. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I thought, well, it's the middle of winter, I know nothing about L.A., let's go check it out. So I got in my car, $500 in my pocket, clothes in the back seat, and I drove out to L.A. I didn't have a job, I didn't have a place to live, I didn't know anybody. My mom called her cousin, they let me stay there, and that's kind of started the whole thing. And when I first landed in L.A., um, I you know, got my agent and tried to do the whole acting thing. But I began to realize very early on that being a producer was where it's at because then you have more control over your life. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, at least you can be working on things and making things rather than as an actor, you're always waiting for somebody to hire you or give you permission. And, yeah. Yeah. Giving per permission to do my work and actors and in Minneapolis, we're very, uh, still are, you know, revered, you know, you have a, a craft and a talent and, you know, in LA, it's like, you say you're an actor, you know, well, where do you waitress, etc. So it was, I just didn't like the feel of it. So I thought, okay, I got to teach myself how to be a producer. How do I do that? So I started producing a workshop on how to produce film. And um, it was a couple hours a week and it ran for 10 weeks and I would start with development and then go into financing and then the production side of things and then the marketing and the distribution. And of course I didn't teach it. I just produced the event. And so I had to hire or ask, ask guest speakers to come in each work 
who were experts in those areas. So I started combing the trades and finding people that were that, and I would ask them to come and speak. So I built up my Rolodex. I made a little money because I produced it. And I, of course, took every course and I did it for like two years, every 10 weeks, do it again, do it again, do it again. So that basically was my BA in filmmaking. And then it was time to get into the real world. And I wanted to, since I was mainly a creative, I wanted to work with an assistant to a producer or writer or director, and I couldn't get hired. And finally, I was offered a job as the executive assistant to the president of a distribution company. And... I didn't know anything about it, but he just needed somebody very organized and talented like me. So I took the job. He offered it to me. And it was with a company that no longer exists, but they should have been the next, another Miramax or New Line. It was called Hemdale. Oh, I remember Hemdale. Of course I remember Hemdale. Yeah, in the 80s, late 80s. Oh, my God. They were, what did they release? They released a bunch of great, I worked in a video store in the 80s and the 90s. So I remember the logo very much and and you right. and you had and you had pl- you didn't have sleeves uh, you had the plastic um boxes on the vhs's i remember right. the white right. yeah, yeah 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 i remember so the three years that i was there we won i don't know 12 academy awards platoon yeah. as yeah. am from salvador so there i am this little peon you know with my ears glued to the phones and to the meetings and i just sucked it in and just it taught me as a producer that 50% is making your movie and 50% is marketing and distribution. And you've got to focus on the marketing and distribution and who your audience is when you're in development or even before you even option anything and put your time and money into it. Mm-hmm. And another thing that it really taught me, began to teach me, it was film financing. They pioneered or were one of the pioneers of the model where you would put up your own P&A and do a rent system. And back then, like you were just saying, you worked in the video store. If you could guarantee a certain level of theatrical release with the P&A commitment, you pretty much got 50 to 75 percent advance for your home video mm-hmm. because they were desperate for anything. Oh, anything. Video stores. So the majority of their money went into the print and advertising and renting a studio system to release their movies. And then if there was a shortfall, they would put some money into the production side of things. So when I left there uh, and started my first company, that was my business plan. I just pretty much replicated that business plan. And at the time, the money was coming out of Asia, and I found a Japanese investor, very wealthy Japanese investor. He was kind of the Bill Gates of Japan, and he bought into this concept, which was smart and what was happening then. And uh, he, you know, he was my uh, financial business partner, and that's how I made my first movie. Executive produced my first movie, which was Fried Green Tomatoes, and. Nice. It was one of those projects that, you know, when I read it, you know, you laugh, you cry, you cry. It was a wonderful film. I remember it. It was it was it was a wonderful film. But, you know, it was like, oh, well, it's a female driven project. It really doesn't have major stars. Oh, you've got the race story. It's it's a period piece. You know, yes, it's beautifully written, but no. So they weren't able to get it made. So I came on board and I said, I'm going to roll my company on this. And because we could get 
and then we went to Universal for the theatrical release, doing a rent system mm-hmm. with uh, me putting up the P and A. And eventually, when they started seeing the dailies and everything, they went back and renegotiated, bought us out of the P and A position. Right. And the rest pretty much is movie history from there. Yeah, that was and that was released by Universal, if I remember. Universal. Yeah. yeah. So that was a that was a big. I remember that was a big release. It, it did very well at our at, oh, at, at our video store. It did very well at our video store, our mom and pop yeah. video store. It's still doing very well. <laughs> it's it's yeah it's amazing that to this day yes to this day it's still probably getting you're getting yeah. nice residual checks uh yes. coming in so that's that's remarkable um now you also that wrote my a film <laughs> now you also you wrote a book um called the producer's handbook right it's called the producer's business handbook okay and i think it's in its it's fourth, fourth I think edition fourth. third edition mm-hmm. i forget but yeah so it basically through all this, there, you know, by, by putting that course together, by being at Hemdale when I was, and uh, by um, having to do this business plan and all this financing, I had to learn it all. Nobody taught me that. And it's really hard to learn it even in school to this day, the financing side of it. Very much so. So um, throughout the years, I just had to, you know, educate myself to this. And I remember... When I was at Hemdale, their uh, in-house attorney left. And so I said, well, I'll sit in all the meetings and take the notes. So in all the legal meetings, I was there and I would just quietly take notes. And then I'd call my dad, who was an attorney. And I go, Dad, pro rata, peri pursue. How do I spell it? What's it mean? And, you know, just began to learn the language of film financing. And so once... I became more of an expert in this arena. I thought, you know, I, I don't want to, it shouldn't be that hard to get this information. So, you know, put this book together with John Lee. Um, he had written the first edition and we did the second and third. And it's, it's you know, with what's gone on in the last uh, three to five years, we still need to do another edition oh. and keep it up to date. But a lot of the stuff still has stayed the same. You know, there's still pre-sales and estimates and completion and, and, uh, you know, so, so I I get, I, I, yes, there is certain things that have stayed in place, but in today's marketplace, you know, from my experience in the business, the sales and the distribution side of things, sales have just really dried up in a in in a way that when I say dried up, I mean it's like like in the eighties, people were printing money. In the nineties and the early two thousands, all just like uh, Sniper Seven, yes, just yeah. put out Sniper Seven. It's already pre-sold and you got three million on DVD. Like it, it those days are so gone and the marketplace is shifting so much now that unless you have really bankable, like extremely bankable stars and genres, it's almost impossible to really recoup money. So as a producer, from from what I've seen in the distribution space, there are certain genres, there are certain talent, uh, you know, excluding the anomaly, excluding the the Sundance, whatever, or the film festival darling that really doesn't even happen as much as it used to back in the nineties. So how do you, as a, as a producer in today's world kind of guarantee, because even pre-sales again, without the proper star and genre, because you could put Nicolas Cage in a certain kind of genre. He doesn't sell nearly as much as if you put him in an action or, or something like that, or it's Stallone in a drama 
doesn't really move the needle as much. So I just would love to hear your take on that. Well, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of the podcast. And scene. We're and done. And that's the end of it. All right. <laughs> you, know, but, you know, it it's always something. I've been doing this for 25 plus years. It's always something. So you just gotta pivot. You just gotta learn the new way and pivot. And so right now I would say you're absolutely right. You need a certain level of talent and that talent has to be right for the genre. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You gave a perfect example. You have to have the right budget level for the reasons you're talking about. Right. You know, um, are you going to be able to get any pre-sales and at what budget level is that, you know, so all those things come into play. So certainly as somebody that's more about quality than like just straight horror or something. or uh, action, you're, 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 you're quality versus product. Uh, and there's a balance between I, I the two. I married the two. Right, it's a balance between the two. My moniker is balanced producer, okay? So you've got it, and it's a three-legged stool. you got to give equal to the creative and the distribution and the money. And anytime one outweighs the other, it's somehow lopsided. So, you know, how do you creatively answer those problems? So for, as an example, when um, I go for casting, you know, there's there's my, me and my director's wish list, you know, uh, there's the casting people that come up with interesting ideas and I kind of combine the two and then I go to my international sales agent and I go and they give me their, and they're totally different. And so you got to figure out what's the right balance for that movie and that marketability. And there, and there's also like a, a bit of delusion I found because uh, I do a lot of consulting and coaching and distribution and there's filmmakers who come out with, um, they're like, look, I, I've got, I want to get Nick, I'm going to just use Nick as, a, as an example. Uh, sure. I want to, I want to get Nick Cage involved. I'm like, okay. And I, I, I know producers and directors who have, have gotten Nick on a $5 million movie, a $6 million movie, um, in, in certain genres, it, it kind of like a horror-ish action genre. And that works at that budget level. But a lot of times they'll like come up with an idea and they want Nick involved and like, it's going to cost you 40 million. And I'm like, no, that, th that star at that budget range, there has to be more than just Nick attached for that to make sense financially. There has to be other cast. Yeah. The director needs to have some sort of presence. You know, like a Joe Carnahan can can bring out a movie at forty million dollars with you know a Frank Grillo and you know a in the cage like that 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 monitor makes sense because of the pre sales that those guys come up together and then Joe and his whole thing that's the that that and that package is that that package is sold before they ever start shooting like. Yeah, and it's, and, and it's, you saw that with the recent Berlin. You know, there's certain announcements that I. Every territory sold out. This is the, and you, and whether you know what the movie's about or not, you just kind of, like you said, you see the package. So when somebody says, what is your package? You know, that's what they're asking for. You know, and it's so important that you understand what the finance plan needs to be, what the budget level needs to be, what level cast it is, you know, where the genre fits in the marketplace. Right. And they all have to meld together in the right, perfect magical combination and you can't i and i've been doing this 25 years i don't even real i don't rely on my opinion you know, <laughs> I, you know i get a casting director's opinion i get the international sales agent's opinion i get you know i work with them and what are the estimates and you know cast and how does that and diversity now is another huge thing 
you know, which is wonderful. I mean, the, one of the most recent conversations I had was with the sales agent as we're going to um, have to replace one of our people. And it's all, give me diversity, give me diversity. And it doesn't need to be a big name, but it needs to be diversity. And, I, you know, it's interesting. So I, I've got Native Americans, I've got, you know, um, Asian, you know, and it's really wonderful to be able to give you know, to really cast that way with those opportunities. But I think, I think before, like again, in the eighties and nineties, you could be a sloppy producer, meaning that you could just kind of like, uh, it'll, it'll, you had such a cushion that money was almost guaranteed if you had just this or that, and you didn't really need to be that good. Honestly, because mm -hmm. I remember the movies that I saw in, in the video store in the eighties and nineties were garbage and they were, and they were making bank and when dvd showed up i mean my god the money was just flying license to print i mean it was just literally like i always yeah. use sniper seven as an example because they made so much money with the sniper the sniper uh, franchise and they were bad movies but you know they brought they brought todd out uh not todd um tom tom berenger out every you know few years and they're like yeah here's here's a mill let's go do this um and that's one thing and then another thing is too what makes sense today so let's say right now um a certain actor is hot well when you started that movie he might have been hot but something might have happened in the next 12 months and a perfect example is yeah. i had i had producers i won't use the actor's name but a lot of people have i've spoken about this actor before nothing against the actor uh he's an actor who works a lot um and he's not a huge star but he's a, a, a name and a face uh and he's bankable to a certain budget but he sure. made that year 17 movies so when his movie came out in the marketplace, he'd go to the distributors like, I already got three of him. I'm good this year. Like I already yeah. got. So they, he's diluted his value and the producer was there holding, holding the bag. So there's mm -hmm. that, that whole thing. Because if tomorrow morning Nick comes out and makes 30 movies next year, which by the way, Nick Cage could possibly do 30 movies, his value in the marketplace might, I'm not saying he is, he doesn't that, do that many. No, but I mean, he, that, that happened all the time, you know, where people just do too much. But there are still sloppy producers, but the oh, sloppy yeah. producers are not making the money back for the investors. And they're just taking, you know, a lot of innocent investors, you know, and taking their money and running and knowing they're not going to be able to, you know, get their money back. But, you know, it, it just drives me crazy. It's why investors think this is such a high risk, horrible business to be in because so many sloppy producers or not just, you know, just kind of pie in the sky, just I got to make my movie and, and they're not the balanced producer and they're not understanding what the audience is and what the market will allow and trying to keep it all in check. Oh, the, the delusions that are out there with filmmakers and producers sometimes is like, look, if you want to make an art film, make an art film, you know, and yeah. You know, I made my first film for five grand. I sold it to Hulu and I sold it to Hulu and licensed it to Hulu, sold, sold some foreign territories with it. It was fantastic. It was an art film. It was an experimental film. I didn't really know what it was like. How is it going to turn out? But at that budget level, who cares? But if I would have made that for two, three hundred thousand, it would I, I, you can't. It's there's just a balance of again. There's that word again, balance of what you if you want to make art. Understand that there's a value attached to that art. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. And it may all. be lucky and it may go through the roof and that's great. But, you know, you need, I mean, another big term for me is risk mitigation. Yes. 
if you want to talk to investors or financiers or funders, that's a good term to use. You know, how are you going to mitigate my risk? You know, and pre-sales, tax incentives. There's there's a, a list of things that you can collection do. accounts. A lot of people don't know about collection mm -hmm. accounts, and it's just like one of the best things that you can offer an investor to have. Can you can you explain a collection account for the audience real quick? Sure. It's 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 basically um, a, a, a third party escrow account where all mainly it's international revenue, but it can be revenue for whatever your project is is then assigned to go into this escrow account. So it's protected. So all the stakeholders, whether they be net profit people, investors, um, mezzanine bank, loan funders, whatever, they know that whatever revenue comes, it is protected in this third-party escrow account. And everybody signs off on the term is called waterfall, who gets paid in what order, what percentage, and all of that. So there are two main companies out there that do that. Vintage House, F-I-T. Yeah, I had, I've had them on the show. They're wonderful. Okay. Yeah. And a Freeway Entertainment. Mm -hmm. And Freeways probably would do more lower budget movies than Vintage might take on. So if you're in a lower budget range, I'd start with them. And they'll take, sometimes if it's a really low, low budget movie, they might take a fee off. You don't pay them up front, but the first revenues that come in, they might take a fee and then it's 1%-ish area, or they just start at the 1%. And they the first thing that they put aside is is uh, residuals, the potential residuals that are yes. going to be to the you, for uh, unions yeah yeah so when you go to become a signator for say if you have a collection account set up that can help you with putting up those very large uh, residual bonds etc because they know that it will be paid because they're holding that money for you plus it protects all the stakeholders so it's just a win-win all the way around to have a, a collection account yeah it is it's wonderful you'll hear the word camp collection account manager you know etc it's it's one and the same yeah it's um well i have to ask you now like how do you well i wanted to ask you first how do you raise development money because that's the hardest money to because there's no guarantee that there's anything even going to get made we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show so you're just basically rolling the dice as an investor going hey i'm i i, I like this book that you have we're going to develop it into a screenplay I'm going to help you develop it into a screenplay. I'm going to get a piece of the action once this movie gets made. But how do you raise that kind of money? Well, um, again, it's about being very balanced in your approach. You know, you, you use the very common term, it's the highest risk of all the money. And I don't know if I would agree with you there. It's the lowest amount of money. It is. Risk manage it properly. It's not the highest risk. What you just talked about is making this movie for, you know, 20 million. And that's a lot of money. And I guess you're right. So I think that might even be a higher risk. But to answer your question specifically, Producers nowadays are totally expected to come with a package, which means you need a powerful screenplay. You need to be able to hire legal, hire a casting director, do budgets and schedules, hire a UPM line producer if you don't do that yourself. You know, all these, you know, beautiful look books and sometimes sizzle reel or ripomatics and, you know, all Pitch these deck. Yeah. and it all takes money. Pay the writer and totally 
on the producers now. Whereas before you could go, oh, I've got this great IP, this book, and you know, companies would jump. Not so much anymore. So you've got a couple of different options. Um, one is to go to a company that already has development money or a, a first look deal with a network or a streamer or whatever. So for instance, if it's a great a book that you're going after uh, and a really powerful lead, interesting role for an actress of a certain age. I go through a variety insight and find out who's got deals at all these different streamers or networks and, um, and the actress that would be uh, actors that would be right for it. I do my research to make sure that they have a real production company. Many just have a name where you want to be sure there are people there that they have a partner, they have a creative executive. And, you know, then I try to pitch the creative executive and then they would bring it to their first look. So that's one model. And you can do that with directors, writers, showrunners, actors, etc. Then and the toughest model is you do it yourself. Yeah. And, and you bootstrap. To, yeah, you bootstrap, bootstrap it. it. Um, and I'm sure we've all done that on some level. And then there's the put the proper business plan together and get a development fund together. And you really have to, you know, again, risk mitigate the approach. So the way that I and, and it's really spelled out pretty a whole chapter of it is in the book about development financing. And you want to do it in steps. OK, so you put together um, a finance plan or costs of what you think you're going to need. So there's legal, there's the writing of the screenplays, there's casting director, there's the UPM, there's visual materials, there's all that line item stuff. I don't like to put too often money for myself because that's my skin in the game. And so, uh, you know, if I wouldn't approach it that, oh, great, I'll, I'll be able to live off this money while I now I'm a real producer as I develop. That's a little difficult, but you can put something in there for that. And then you make sure that each step of the way you're test marketing it. So the first thing that I do is um, I, I run comparables from the last five to seven years to see what else out there in this genre, in this level, budget that I'm thinking of, director that I'm thinking of level, the type of cast, I think, what has worked, what hasn't worked more importantly, and why hasn't it worked? And I wanna be sure that the way I'm planning all of this, uh, you know, is, is fitting into the, the specificity of what the marketplace might allow for. Once I've done that, I call that green light, okay? And I run the numbers. You know, for the internal, run, the, that's the concept, the internal green light, the internal green light. That's right. So I, I track, you know, what what the budget level was for that movie, um, how wide a screen it opened on, uh, what was the widest screen it finally opened on, because that tells you the the, the spread of the P&A. So did it open on five screens and then it went to 300? That's a whole different level than if it opens on 3200. And then that's the most it ever opens on because you're spending 25, 35 million right out of the gate just to opening weekend. So I track that, what the genre is, what the level of talent is, director and lead cast. And I got to go to the year that it was released, not who they are now. So I've got to go back five, seven years to, to contemplate who they are now, what the um, uh, rating was, because, you know, if I'm thinking I'm going to deliver a PG movie and all the comps I have are R, 
it throws everything off. So I, I and I look for the trailers that they use. I look for the visuals, the posters, and all of that, uh, the taglines. So I have this massive spreadsheet where I'm tracking like 30 comps with all this information, really educating myself to what this material, where this material might fall. And if I come up with numbers that look like I think I'm onto something really strong here, then I don't just rely on me. I go and vet it with a distributor, with an international sales agent, et cetera, and say, this is what I think I'm going to do. This is the level cast. And they go, yeah, that, that I can sell. You know, if you can deliver on this, that I can sell. Then I start spending money. But if I get no's in any one of those places, I stop and I find a different property that's going to get me yeses. And can, can you just tell everybody really quickly with these plans and these packages, a lot of times they use comparables, um, uh, to other films. So uh, I've seen this way too many times and please tell people to stop doing this and, and, and disagree with me if you like. If you're making a horror movie, <laughs> if you're making a horror movie and you are putting together a package, do not use Blair Witch Project and Paranormal Activity as this is what horror movies do to yeah. investors. Any That's smart money will just yeah. look at you and go get out of my office. Dumb money, you're, dumb you're money will on. take it. Yeah. Dumb money might not, but it just shows me you're a peon. You don't know the business. Right. And, you know, if I would never use it as a comparable in my narrative part of my business plan, I might mention something like that if it's perfect, perfect. <laughs> but I would never, never use it in my financial comparables because it's just it's wrong. It's anomalies. <laughs> it's right. It's it is. It's it's like winning the lottery. So and the same with um, <laughs> movies that win Academy Awards. It's like, oh yeah, my movie will win the Best Picture Academy Award. So I'm going to do the same as this movie. You oh, can't do yeah, yeah, like Moonlight. Like my movie was shot in Miami, and, and their movie was yeah. shot in Miami. So it's Moonlight, and they won the Oscar, and I can win the Oscar as well. Yeah, that or or Napoleon so, Dynamite. Oh my God. Yeah. Napoleon so, Dynamite. So I'm tracking yeah. awards and things like that as well, and and so I. I I try to get it down to the most realistic 10 to 15 that really fall there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, one of the biggest problems producers and filmmakers have is that chicken and egg thing, which is attaching name talent to a project, something that's going to give you the money. But then the name talent doesn't want to come on board until you have the money. So there's that chicken and egg thing. How do you approach? How do you attach uh, potential name talent to your project? Well, sometimes name talent won't regardless. Um, <laughs> that's just a fact, sure. you know, or their, their agents won't let them, um, especially hot up and comers. Sometimes they take a little too much advice maybe from, or let the handlers handle them a little too much. Um, so, so that, that there are, there's nothing you can do about that. But um, what you can, some of the things you can do, it helps to have a casting director. Mm -hmm. You know, it helps to have a very good attorney, a recognizable firm, you know. Recognizable and recognizable casting director helps too. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, and the it's the, first and foremost, it's about the material. you got to have a great piece of material, great screenplay for a role that they want, not a role they've done it over and over and over again. I mean, they, they want to, real actors want to, you know, express themselves 
take on something that they haven't done before. So a lot of times I really, if, if I'm going to have to go out for actors at a very early stage and use them, I, I want to think outside the box a little bit more. So if they're known for comedy, but you know, they've got the chops offer the, like Robin Williams, you know, Jim what Carrey. Was, right. Yeah, Jim Carrey, you know, give them the opportunity in a role that's very dramatic when you know they can do it. They just haven't been given that opportunity. So they would come on board. And and for a much lower uh, quote. Much lower. Absolutely. Because you can't pay him for, you know. Can't pay Jim. You can't pay Jim Carrey twenty million in the height of yeah. Dumb and Dumber to yeah. do man. But but if you want to do Man in the Moon, you could probably get him sometimes yeah. for scale. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. If they really, really want to do it, yeah. so it happens. And and if the actor has a production company um it's a little easier because you're not necessarily going through the agent you're going to the creative executive there and you know and, and they're going to come on board as a producer and they'll have much more creative input and hands-on um if i'm going that route well i do this regardless but you know i i really you know are they on any boards do they support any you know, are there ambassadors or anything? What nonprofits do they? Because again, I'm, I like to focus on a lot of social impact projects, so that you can do what's called a double bottom line. Not only is the role really great, but it's an issue that's important to them. So those are some of the key things that I try to do when to get, I have to get them enticed. Right, yeah. and and then there's also the you know the the harsh realities of like, well, who's the director? Um, who's the producer? You know, just mm -hmm. because you you might have the next Pulp Fiction, but if you have a, a producer who's never done a thing in their life and a director who's done one short film and won an award at the Moose Jaw Film Festival, which I don't even know if that's a real festival or not. Um, but um, I want to go. <laughs> I want to go to the Moose Jaw International Film Festival. Uh, but then there's that whole uphill battle. And I've been there as well. And I've seen that as well, where you've got good material, but the team, there's no confidence that the team ever can execute this yeah. so there's that too yeah so you got to take you know i'm working with a couple of first-time directors mm -hmm. and um i believe in them 250 percent and they're great in a room in a pitch they can speak their passion and vision and you just you're you're on board you know you really and and they've spent the time to put together the right materials to visually showcase what they can do. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to take on something with the first time director as a producer, you know, you, they need to be of that caliber because it is, it, it, you know, you do have a bit of an uphill battle. Um, and you've got to be sure that once they get in the room or the zoom or whatever, with <laughs> potential talent that they're they're able to close them and and they're they're going to say i'm going to feel confident in your head you know what you're doing right you know and a lot of times they are writer directors so you know uh, the the material they can speak to the material better than anybody and that's also if you can be a writer director that's honestly the only real control you have as a director especially if you're first time you know unless you own the property all out they can yeah. replace you. they can throw you out under the bus so quickly and i've seen it happen where the writer gets onto a producer and the producer's like i got nick cage 
but Nick can't work with with Bob because yeah. Bob Bob's never directed anything. But but, but Nick's got a director who he's worked yeah. with a bunch of times, and he wants to do the project. This is the reality of the business. So it's really important that as a producer, you have those tough conversations before you go out. Technically, legally, get into business with this writer, director, director, or writer. Mm-hmm. It's you know, you've got to understand. I mean, where do you stand? Is this your Rocky that if you're offered a million, you're not going to walk away? And I need to know, you know, because, because uh, you know, I, I, I want to take that million. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or is this something that um, if you were bumped to a producer and you've got credit and you've got your piece produced, but you couldn't direct it, would you accept that? And sometimes there are yeses and sometimes there's no. And I will move in either case, you know, depending on how I feel about that situation or that particular person. But you need to know that going in. You don't want to be surprised later or get stuck later at the mercy of. Yeah, no Unless question. You made that choice and you knew it going in. And that's only something you learn as a producer with time. Because when you first are starting out, you you fall into all the traps we just that you just laid out right there. Every little yeah. scenario, I've already hit that those walls a ton of times. I'm sure you hit them when you were starting out. And only with time do you understand, you know what, I really need to have this conversation. This is it's yeah. it's, it's the come to Jesus conversation. Like yes. it's it's like, look, this is the reality of what is happening. And my whole world of indie film hustle, my whole universe is all about giving you the hard facts and truth because I'd rather you hear it from me than when you're sitting in a room and someone just pulls yeah. the wool right under right, right from underneath your feet right. the rug after right, right underneath your feet um, would you would you say I always say this uh, and I'd love to hear if you agree I believe that my philosophy of this business is that every single person no matter who, if you're Steven Spielberg Kubrick Hitchcock or the lowest film student, all of us are going to get punched in the face, period. And we're going to get punched in the face multiple times in our careers. And it, they're going to come fast. They're going to come hard. Sometimes you won't see them coming. And it's only with time and hopefully some knowledge that it's not the question of if you'll get hit. It's a question when you'll get hit and how you'll get hit. And you have to start learning how to take the hit, especially early on, and keep going forward. And then as you get older, you might get a little wildly and you can start getting it to slip off you and then occasionally you can get them to miss altogether or not even get into that conversation as you go down the road but even even pros who've been in this 20 30 years they still get surprised and my job and my my calling is to try to let everybody know you're gonna get punched here's how to take the punch (laughs) is that fair oh absolutely you know, everybody thinks that, oh, once I get my first movie made, you know, it's all golden from that. I forget the statistic I have in one of my notes when, when I teach my finance class, but I think 98% of first time filmmakers never make a second movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Something, something horrific like that. It's just like, whoa. And, and for all those reasons you just stated, it's just like, you know, you're going to be punched. And the question is, how quickly can you come back from it? Don't let it, it's going to knock you down and you got to bounce right back up and come back at it. And, 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 and later, when you're looking your wounds, you go, okay, what just happened? How can I avoid that next time? Exactly. And, but, but most, but so many filmmakers have these stars in their eyes that they just don't even know that the punch is coming. And when they get hit once, they're out, they're out cold and and they're out of the game. I mean, when I was talking um, to Oliver Stone on the, on the show a while ago, I was 
I wasn't shocked, but he's like, I'm still hustling my movie. I'm still trying to get my movie made. I'm like, I was just going to say that you're yeah. Oliver Stone. He's like, yeah, yeah I'm no. Oliver Stone, but I'm still trying. It doesn't matter. It doesn't you, matter. You movie and it killed you to get it together. You did your 17th and it killed you. To get it. There might be an odd one here and there where it just kind of falls in your lap and things happen and those are golden, but it's a constant, constant battle to put it together. And, and five years from now, the whole finance plan is going to be different. And five years from there, it's going to change and there's going to be something else. And, it's, and you got to constantly pivot and constantly relearn. And you've got, I mean, I remember initially just having to tweak because I was a creative. I didn't, I didn't go, I didn't know economics and legal and all that, but you read my book and you think I was a, you know, an a, attorney. a PhD, a PhD of some sort. Yeah, I didn't know, you know, and, and, and I hated it when I was in it, trying to figure it out and learn. I just hated it. And then I just, I just kind of went, no, it's creative. Putting a finance plan and doing this is creative. And just with that little shift and over time, it gets big. So all day, every day, I am still being creative because every time I get on the phone with somebody, I, I use my acting. It's like, who is that person? What is their tone like? Okay, I got to match their rhythm. And it could be, okay, what's going on? What do you need? Then I got to talk like this. Okay, this way. Or like with Alex. When we first started, so how are you doing? And what's going on? And you get oh, and or whatever it is, and and or or they throw something at you, even though your agenda and your plan and your bullet points are right in front of you, and they throw something at you. You gotta okay, yeah. improv. It's all those years of improv class, you know. You never know what's gonna come back. So, uh, so to me, that's all just wonderfully creative. And when you used to go to meetings. It's like, how do I need to dress for that meeting? If it's a bank or a financier, I got to look like I don't need the money. If it's a creative, I got to wear my creative clothes, you know? And so you can't walk in, you can't walk into creative with this, with a suit and you can't walk into uh, a, a, um, a bank with your, uh, your khakis on and flip flops. Right. Like, in your jeans, you know? in your it's not going to work. It's not going to yeah. work. Yeah. Now. Um, so you've been in the business for many years. I'm assuming that uh, there was never been a negative experience with a distributor in your entire career, that everything is run smoothly, all the money is coming uh, 110%, everyone's been completely open with the reporting, and uh, it, you've never had any issues whatsoever. Is this a fair statement, or am I completely off base? You're completely off base. <laughs> I think I knew I would. <laughs> to the point where the whole team just finally gave up. It, it, it's It's... You know, it's Goliath. David and Goliath is just like, you know, they just throw another legal thing at you and you, you run out of money. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Your investors say it's enough already. I, I'm not spending any more legal money to try to track this down or get this just enough. How, but I, I got to ask you. It's, it's look in my my audience is very well aware of my feelings on distribution and and what I've and what I've been able to do for them uh, and getting the information out about distribution and predatory distributors and things like that. But I have to ask you, like the whole concept of the Hollywood accounting, which is where I mean, which is basically started in the days of Chaplin. I mean, this started early. I mean, United Artists was created by Pickford Chaplin and Fairbanks because they were getting screwed by the studios. So this whole Hollywood accounting thing and how distributors do not, and I'm not saying all, but a lot of distributors, unscrupulous distributors will do things in their numbers to make sure that you, the producer, you, the filmmaker, never see a dime. How is this a functioning business? 
Like, is it just purely because there's fresh meat that constantly is coming in to replenish the old meat that's just exhausted of just getting ripped off or investors? Is that how the system works? Because in any other business, you know, if you were in the cookie business and I, you know, you all of a sudden I, I sell 5,000 cookies and I'm like, sorry, I really didn't sell 5,000 cookies because the chocolate chips, you know, they got more expensive and, and all these guys, like that doesn't happen in other businesses and not, at, I mean, sure that does, but not at that level. So blatant that there's a name for it. And there's, and, and, and really quickly, you know, the whole thing with the me too movement, which was basically, which was the, you know, the casting couch. It was a punchline. It was a joke. It was part of this this fabric of the industry. Like, you know, oh, if you want to get it, you got to go on the couch, casting couch. That whole thing was business as usual for way too long. I feel that what's going on with distributors is the financial version of that kind of abuse because yeah. you're just being abused financially. Like you just said, we just gave up. So I'm sorry, I threw a thousand things at you. What do you have to say? <laughs> I went on a rant. I apologize. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. And it's, I mean, that's as old as the hills. And, you know, there's, it, uh, you need a really good attorney. Yeah. And the net, the profit definitions or the net profit definitions of, of studios, distributors sometimes can be 30 pages long. It just gets ridiculous, so ridiculous. you know, for that reason. Um, so that's where a really, really smart attorney can at least be helpful. Um, it's why a lot of people pay so much money up front or try to get as much money up front as possible. Because you'll never get anything it's else. It's why no. they yeah. ask for gross position. It's why they ask for box office bonuses. You know, so, you know, they can see what, what you know, which is a little difficult now because the theaters have crashed and burned. Um, it's why... You see the streamers paying these big hefty amounts because that's all that ever, ever. going to be there because there is no other window or back end or whatever. Um, uh, it's just the way it has been. But um, but we're due for a change. We're due for something. Something has to change. Yeah. And I don't know what that technology will be, what that system will be, but something has to come. Cra the, I, the system is already stressed like the distribution system COVID has put it was already look when I went to AFM in 2019 I was like yeah. I was walking around I was like Jesus it's just a bunch of dinosaurs like I mean I'm walking over corpses I mean it was it was really yeah. it was really bad and, and it's just kept get, getting going down 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 so nothing against AFM but just the, the marketplace has changed so much um in that space so I feel like the there's so much stress on the the apparatus of distribution and now COVID just put it more, it will pop. I feel something's going to come crashing down. I think the next economic downturn, something. Yeah, but you got to watch the word distribution is such a large, all-encompassing entity. Correct. I think you're more talking like theatrical and then it leads into something else. No, I'm talking, I'm talking about the whole, like the apparatus. Well, I, but if you go to a Netflix, if you get a deal with a Netflix or a Hulu or Amazon, you Not get talking about this. front that you sold it for whatever That's million different. and you've done it. Non-studio, non-studio. I'm talking about yeah. non-studio distributors okay. is what I'm talking about. Yeah. I just want you to be clear because Very. it's such an all-encompassing word. And, it, and that's another reason that I like having a collection account. And, and it doesn't help so much on the domestic side, but certainly on all the international, because your sales agent, in your agreement with your sales agent, it says that any monies you know, that are, are collected will not go to them, but they'll 
all the distribution agreements with all the different distributors in France and Germany and UK, when they do the agreements with them, it says that um, all monies due, minimum guarantees, overages will go into this account. So it never goes to the sales agent, it goes right there. And we talk that through in the waterfall and how it's all protected. So that's another reason that how you can risk mitigate some of those issues. But then if the distributor in Germany doesn't want to pay. What are you going to do? You're going to go sue? You know, yeah, then then that's pretty tough. But again, the collection account people, they know all those distributors, you know, uh, they can help track that and deal with that for you, et cetera. So it's there's ways around it, but it is a very slippery shark infested situation yeah. where you really need to understand the navigation of it. I Absolutely. remember I was I was talking to an, a, a filmmaker at AFM. They came up to me and they're like, hey, I got a deal. I'm like, great. They're like, we just got a thirty thousand dollar MG. I'm like, well, that's fantastic. What was your budget? They're like one hundred and fifty. I'm like, OK, what was that for? He goes, it was all rights for five years. I'm like, so. You're happy about that? Yeah, we got thirty thousand. I'm like, in what business ever yeah. that you <laughs> spend one hundred fifty thousand and you're happy? Happy about thirty? Like that's there's something systemically wrong with that. Well, right, and again, where we started was being that balanced producer. It probably was not his money. Probably, and he got to make the movie he wanted to make. And it's going and out into the world. Back and, you know, got a little bit back and can at least give a check back, you know, so oh, I'm happy, you know, but th- that's not a sustainable business and it's not a sustainable career. And I honestly, it's not a moral, <laughs> there's moral issues there no. as well. That's a yeah. whole other conversation. That now, really is. <laughs> so what projects are you working on now? Um, uh, I'm working on a project and this is a first time feature film director although he's done music videos and shorts and sure, sure. all of these other accomplished things. filmmaker but not feature filmmaker right right exactly and um it, it's uh it's a sci-fi trilogy uh and the first one is Persephone and um we're doing uh, we have an international sales agent we um have uh really creative wonderful deals with the visual effects house and the virtual virtuals i do i hope you have somebody coming on board to talk about virtual and what's going on there i already i already i already did okay. yeah it's, okay because yeah. that's, that's that's the way to go that's the future filmmaking and that again will get those budgets down will keep us safe because we don't have to go to all these locations and just a myriad of wonderful i mean things. yeah you just watch the mandalorian and you just go how yeah in god's green earth yeah it's so fascinating it's so one and it's cheap too it honestly is not that expensive i mean mandalorians it's expensive but if you if you're doing it at a much indier level you can get the company that i had on uh, called on, I think it was Unreal. I think they are. I forgot their name, but Unreal Engine. I'm not, I'm not sure if it was Unreal Engine, but it, it no. might. It was another company that was using that engine. But bottom right. line is that the, the smaller, the, the smaller, the smaller version of it for a wall, just a wall, like a full wall. Yeah. Ten thousand bucks for the actual engine, and then whatever the screens cost. So under twenty grand, thirty grand, you've got a whole virtual set. That you can yeah. use and build sets in front of and move and it's it was fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah, capture it all in camera and you can stay on the sound stage and oh, it's great. It's, it's great. Yeah. Well, that that so that, that sounds exciting. Trilogy is being shot that way. That's amazing. That's gonna be yeah. that's gonna be a lot of fun. very excited about that and to use that that technology. Now I'm gonna ask you a few questions. I ask all my guests. What advice would you give a filmmaker trying to break into the business today? 
Um, material, material, material. Mm-hmm. Um, if you spend any of your own money, make sure, well, even the most important thing is to have a good attorney. <laughs> yes. So when you have any money, development money, your money, whatever, have a good attorney and make sure that whatever agreements you're doing are locked, solid, chain of title, option agreements, whatever, you know, work for hire, writer agreements, you know, make sure you have an attorney dealing with that. So many times I see people, oh, they get a template from a friend and they just kind of change a few th- and, and get in trouble, get in a lot of trouble later down the road. Um, and, and you can't give up. I mean, what we were talking about, you just, it's, it's take just keep moving. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And bring partners in to, like you said, first time produce. I've never done that. We'll find a partner who has that believes in the material like you and that you legally moral compass wise are on the same page and can go down that road together. You know, I've done that a lot in my career. Sounds you know, good. I, yeah. What is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Not about me. Wow, that was a quick answer. <laughs> it's not, hey, get over yourself. It's not about me. <laughs> you know, whatever their anger is, whatever their upset is, F you, you're never going to work in this time. It's, it's, it's not about me. It's, and that's, uh, yeah. that's a tough one. That's a tough one. You know what? And have you had that statement said you'll never work in this town again? Have someone said that to you? You know, I've had that, I've had that said to me. Like you, when someone says that to you, they are in a place of such massive ego and it's it's so they're so far gone in so much pain if the, if someone said and of course the the more infamous you do you know who i am if someone ever says do you know who i am just walk away yeah yeah that's for sure. <laughs> just walk away i've had that experience too i'm like wow wow no. I am. Do you know who I am? You'll never work in this town again. I, by yeah. the way, anytime I'm on set, I yell out, you'll never work in this town again, at least 20 times a day. And everyone pisses themselves. I do it constantly. Anytime a grip does oh, something, funny. anytime a grip says something wrong, I'll just walk by. I'm like, dude, you'll never work in this town again. And then they just start. So I make it a joke because it's so ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and then I think someone called me out once and I did something on set. They're like, All right, my phone rang. My phone rang on set. And oh, I no. did, my phone rang. I'm like, whose phone is that? Like, it's yours, sir. You'll never work in this town again. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to steal that when I'm on set on my next movie. Yes. Just it's just, That's you'll never work okay. in this town again. Um, and three of your favorite films of all time. Fried green tomatoes. Obviously. <laughs> um... Oh, I'm such a singing in the rain person. Okay. Just because I was a mus- directed musicals and, you know, and actually that was my first goal coming out here was to uh, do musicals. And I haven't done one yet. Well, the, the market, the market's uh, it's a little rough for the musicals. Not as much as it used to be in the 40s, <laughs> in the 30s and 40s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and. You know, something I just saw this year that I watched it like three times just because I was so enthralled with it. And it was the trial of the Chicago 7. 
Oh, okay. What I, I was. Aaron Sarkin yeah. and the writing and the acting and the history and how it spoke on so many levels. And it, it was just yeah. to, it was to, a... to, to be able to do something like that and leave that kind of legacy and help the dialogue mm-hmm. in the, in, in, right now for, for the whole United States, I thought was just timing was brilliant. Timing was. And he said that he goes, you know, about five years ago, this wouldn't have worked. But. You know, in today's in today's yeah. environment, uh, I got greenlit. <laughs> so, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And where can people and where can people reach out to you if they if uh, and find you online? Well, they can go to my website, gillengroupllc.com, and there's a form to fill out. I think it probably even has my email, etc. I'm pretty easy to find. Okay, I'm not hiding anywhere. <laughs> you know. Well, and. and- I'm really nice about talking to a lot of people or Careful. helping people. Yeah, I really take that pretty seriously. I mean, I can't do it all day, every day, obviously, but, you know, people that know me uh, know that they can always pick up the phone and pick my brain and sit in on a call with them that is difficult for them and translate it for them later, what it meant and all of that. So That's I try awesome. to do that because it was such a hard, hard journey for me and nobody should have to struggle that hard to learn it and get it. Amen, sister. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And it has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. You bet. I want to thank Anne-Marie for coming on the show and dropping her knowledge bombs on the tribe today. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, including how to get her book, The Producer's Business Handbook, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 279. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 